Hello and welcome to the latest podcast about uh, the study of the history of the book here at Oxford University. My name is Adam Smythe and I'm very delighted and excited to be joined by Anna Sander here in the Balliol College Special Collections. And it's a beautiful day outside but we are inside and we are going to discuss an exciting new arrival here in the collection relating to Graham Greene and in particular Josephine Reed, Graham Greene's secretary for many years in the second half of the of the 20th century. And it's a new arrival. Anna, can you give us a sense of what, what it is, what's contained in it, what kind of thing are we talking about? The, the formal title of the collection is The Cherry Record Collection of Josephine Reed's Papers and Books Relating to Graham Greene. Snappy. Which is title. a bit of a mouthful, but Josephine Reed was Graham Greene's um, secretary mm-hmm. and literary typist, uh, his secretary from 1958 to 75, right. and then she continued to type his novels until his death. And it's a combination of... Christmas cards, postcards, transcripts, books which he has signed and given to her, and also dictabelts. I don't have a dictabelt. I'd like a dictabelt. What is a dictabelt? All transcripts of dictabelts, isn't it? That's right. We don't have any of the belts themselves. Right. So, alas, we don't have recordings of Graham Greene's voice, right. which would be lovely. But we have something quite close to it, don't we? We have the next best thing, which is the direct transcript by Josephine Reed. So these were cutting-edge dictaphone technology, yeah. and you would have a little hand luggage size, briefcase size machine. Right. And the, the dictabelt was a flexible loop of plastic. Like an inner that, tube on a bike. Yes, only, only flat, I mean, right. without anything inside yeah. it. And you would feed it onto the drum of the recording machine. Right. And it would record in sort of grooves right. onto the thing, sort of like recording onto an LP, I suppose. Yeah. But this was uh, light enough and flexible enough that you could just fold it flat and right. put it in an email envelope and... Wow. send it back to your secretary wow. if you were travelling. So wow. you would use this if you and your secretary were not in the same place, of course, and Graham Greene was travelling all the time. Yeah, yeah. So he could just send yeah. belts back to Josephine. <laughs> Another belt has <laughs> arrived, Josephine. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's, a, I mean, it's a fascinating question, and I guess a problem for archivists like yourself when a, when a technology, with a media technology like that, dies. I mean, people don't use dictaphones anymore. They have little recorders like the one we're speaking into, but they were crucial for a particular moment. But we, have, we kind of have a version that we have the transcripts of that Josephine Reed made. Right? Exactly. The, the dictabelt technology itself, that specific machine, is yeah. obsolete now. And yeah. really, it would be a problem for both preservation mm. of the, the belts themselves mm. and a, a difficulty in how to play them, yeah. how to record them onto digital or anything. If, if yeah. we had them, they would actually be a real problem. Yeah, so yeah. in a way, Josephine has done us a favour. done us a favour. Um, but it's fantastic to have her transcripts of them yeah. because she uses both red and black type oh, to, oh. to differentiate the kinds of things that Graham Greene is saying. Sometimes he'll be dictating verbatim exactly as he wants it sent, dear okay. so-and-so body of letter, right. yours sincerely. Right. And sometimes it's notes to her, I see. just speaking as though she were there. Yeah. Oh, Josephine, would you deal with something, you know, whatever? Uh, would you look up so-and-so's address, write them a letter under your name about A, B, and C? Right, right. She does seem to use red and black to distinguish between those, those types of notes from him. How interesting, how interesting. And this is all material that is new to the world of Graham Greene studies, right? This is it stuff is. that's going to change how, potentially change, how we think about Greene, how people write about his life, his literary reputation. This, it has a, has a kind of urgent importance in that sense. It is. Josephine worked uh, as a young woman during the war for, for SIS, MI6, <laughs> and uh, that very confidential training stuck with her. It I was see. through those connections as well that she was... Uh, introduced to Graham Greene as a 
possible secretary. Right. And he had that background as well. So she was a very confidential secretary. And she and was she... storing this material as it came in with a sense that this is an accumulating future archive that one day will be deposited somewhere. Was she already kind of curating the stuff that came in, do you think? Did she have an eye on the future you who would be cataloguing this kind of stuff? I don't know whether she specifically intended this material to end up in an archive, but as a very efficient and effective secretary who was obviously interested in the continuing life of Graham Greene's work, Mm. even after his own death, Mm -hmm. this is her personal collection that records their working relationship Mm. and uh, her own interest in his work. And what's the standing, roughly, of of Greene in those years? What were the years again? 50... 58 to 75, and then, and then right through to his death. He was at the height of his powers. He was a you know, right. very famous British A major international um, literary figure. Yes, definitely. Okay, great. But well, she always refused to speak to anybody, biographers, the press, anybody. And that was certainly Graham Greene knew that she had refused, and perha- perhaps he asked her to refuse, mm-hmm. because we do have evidence that he was very clear with people that if Josephine refused to give his phone number or his you know, contact detail somewhere. He had given her instructions to do that. Okay. But she certainly continued that confidentiality after his death. Brilliant. But she kept this material. She yes. did not destroy it, and she didn't order it destroyed after her own death. She didn't do a Philip Larkin with his diary. Else. No, so she, she will have been aware that mm. there was a distinct possibility that it would go to an archive. Yeah. It's, it's a particularly fascinating moment, isn't it, in the history of someone's literary reputation, when we have a, the arrival of a new, unexplored archive of papers, that sense of the sort of figure of green, you know, it's going to be revised or reformed in some way. We don't quite know yet how. I mean, you know better than anyone else how it might be revised, I guess, but that, that happened, hasn't happened yet. It's a, it's a really um, compelling sense of green being kind of up, up for grabs, up for negotiation, who he is and what his, what his standing is in the light of this archive, I think. That's right. It's another viewpoint, and it's a fairly small collection compared with some of the huge Graham Green archives in uh, various American repositories especially. The British Library also has quite a few green, green letters but this is very much you know, part of that body of work. And is it here because he went to Balliol College as an undergraduate? Is that why we've got it here? Yes. Right. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So he was approached by her family. Fantastic. Um, so I think we should go through the mysterious round door over there and uh, have, a look at, have a look at some materials. So can you lead on right. with your... Um, Bunch of medieval like keys. So here we are in the repository for the archives and manuscripts. Cold. Air conditioned. Yes. Purpose built. Yeah. It's a heritage building. Okay. But we do have modern purpose built. Uh, accommodation for the special collections. And these are really, really high. The ceiling's high. It's about 18 feet, 20 feet, something like that. And it's um, to the ceiling with green and grey boxes relating to various figures. And if we wander, wander down, court rolls, manor grants, Christopher Hill, box 35. There's a lot of Christopher Hill here. Um, Jowett, box 81, 82, 83. What have we got up here? Harold Nicholson's diaries. Harold Nicholson's diaries. Good Lord, look at that. 1947 diary, 1948 diary in black plastic folders. And T.H. Green, Unnumbered Manuscripts, box one of many, many, many. So we've got tons of things here. And now where, where are we looking for our, our green? Here we go. G.G.J.R. Appropriately, in a green box, but it, many of our boxes happen to be green. Just a coincidence. <laughs> okay, so we are, you have a grey folder tied up with string. 
Looks like the kind of stuff you might have your A-level notes contained in. But it's, I guess, a special <laughs> folder. It's a special... A-level folders with a bit of a difference. Yeah. Yes, these are specially made acid-free and lignin-free uh, archive folders. And they open up flat with four flaps, so that especially if you have loose material in them, you're not fossicking about trying to get things out of an envelope that's right. too small for them. You can right. just lift straight out. Right, and we have lots and lots of handwritten letters, it looks like, here. Right? We have a file of correspondence, yes. This is mostly letters by Graham Greene, many of them handwritten. Ah, this is Greene's handwritten. In his very distinctive and It's very distinctive. It's, I, if that was a finals exam script, I would not want to mark that. That looks hard to read. <laughs> you have to get your eye in, and even then, sometimes he just doesn't quite finish a word. Yes, so I know how he feels. There are constant challenges. <laughs> But it is very distinctive. You see that and it's immediately Graham Greene's handwriting. Yes. Which is good because there are often annotations in Josephine Reed's hand. I see. True to form as his secretary. If he hasn't fully dated a letter, she goes back and dates it afterwards. I see. So this is a... Now, we can't read them out, can we, for reasons of... uh, We would need permission in advance to read out direct quotes. Yes, we won't read direct quotes. Because the copyright doesn't belong to us. I see. This is a letter from Green to Miss Reed. Um, do we know anything about it? Yes, we do. This one is typical in a way. He's writing it while he's away, so not on a dicta belt. This is an actual handwritten letter. Right. And he's writing it on headed notepaper from his flat in the Albany. This is 1959. Yeah. Uh, but Josephine has annotated it from the Congo. From he the would Congo. Often, he would take headed notepaper with him from whichever of his houses, and often he would cross it out and and say where he was actually writing the letter from. Though sometimes you'll get uh, letters on hotel note paper right. from Tel Aviv or Singapore right. or... And he was always on the move, or, re- or often on the move, wasn't he? He was constantly on the move, especially in his later years. He, he rarely stayed a month in one place. Why is that? Is that because of his literary fame and he's giving tours and readings, or is he just an itinerant figure by inclination? Why is he on the move? So? There are lots of theories about that, and the, the biographers particularly interested in getting at psychological reasons for it. I see. Um, some of it was practical. He had lots of people to visit. Yeah. Um, lots of publishers and translation issues to go and talk to various places about. He was often writing articles for British publications about, say, the political situation in whichever country. He was okay. often in, in places that had fairly major political crises going on. And he would go and see what was going on, talk to right. the people in charge, and come back and write something for the TLS. Okay, all right, great. So So this one's from the Congo. That one's from the Congo. What have we got next? This one is on headed paper from the ship of the French line Liberté. So he's writing from a ship, or at least he's taken a paper from a ship (laughs) and is then writing. He probably is writing this one from the ship. Yes, he talks about uh, who he's been put at a table with for dinner on board. The next one is from the uh, Hotel Algonquin in New York. Uh, Here we've got a postcard uh, dated from Bucharest. This is really an extraordinary sort of um, expression of that of his migrations, isn't it? Mm. Every single letter we're looking at is a different hotel in a different country. Here we are in Mexico. Yeah. Next one, um, Hotel Luma. Right. This is on London headed paper, and the next one is on headed paper from his flat in Paris, and the one after that is from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Then Tel Aviv. Lots of airmail envelopes, mostly with stamps. Galilee, Argentina. So these are so so th- so these are Graham Greene handwritten letters to read from all over the world. Yes. Um, many of them late fifties um, by the dates. But these haven't been read before by scholars, by critics. By this anybody. is all new material. This is brand new to scholarship. Wow, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Are you being besieged by people wanting to look at it? There's a, a trickle so far. Okay. We're expecting besiegement. 
And how long... So this arrived in September last year, is yes. that right? And now we're speaking in May, and you've recently finished a catalogue of the whole thing, is that correct? Yes, I finished cataloguing the papers end of March, beginning of April, okay. in time for our exhibition okay. last weekend. Okay. How do interested people find out about that information? Is it on, it's online somewhere? It is online. Can... It's all online. The item-level catalogue. Okay. Is all there. When you say item level catalogue, what does that mean? It means there's a description for each letter. Okay. Okay. So Great. two from date, place, right. and something to give an indication of the content. Okay. And some of that is, is accessible via Solo, which is the Oxford University. Uh, not for the manuscripts, right. except for one series of papers which were removed from the printed books because right. one of the things that Josephine seems to have used her copies of Graham Greene's printed books for was as a kind of filing system. How she was obviously interested in their later reception and reviews and that kind of thing. And so one of the uh, larger series, in fact, of the papers is all the... Magazine articles, newspaper cuttings, the occasional letter or postcard. Ah. So it's an extra illustrated book, sort of augmented with bits and pieces tipped in. It is, yes. It's not so much to do with her close reading of the books exactly, but as a a monument to her massive work of typing these things and, in many cases, uh, correcting. Right. So there would be multiple back and forths between her and Graham Greene about what she was typing up. And she'd store all that stuff in the final book itself, using the book as a kind of box or archive in which she could could place them. And that was one of the reasons we had to take them out, because in some cases there was such a wodge that it was actually affecting the joints of the book. So for preservation reasons, they've been separated. But of course, they have a very important relationship. So that's been kept in their intellectual arrangement. So all the descriptions, my descriptions from... The, the papers that used to be in the books have also been copied into the individual books solo entry right. on the Oxford catalogue. I see, because that, that must be such a common and intriguing problem. I mean, I'm interested in um, books from an earlier period that often have annotations or things inserted in or pasted in, and often libraries and archives are organised as a department of print, printed stuff, as a department of manuscript stuff, and, and, and it's hard for things to be in both at the same time, although the reality of the lives of books was that they were kind of hybrids like that. So you separate them out, but you leave enough information so that people can reconstruct that combination. Yes. Is that right? Physically, we separate them out so that we're looking after yeah. both sides of it better. Yeah. But intellectually, they have to be linked. That's very important. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so we um, press on through okay. our headed note. we move paper? on a few years? Are these ordered chronologically within each Yes, pretty folder? much, yeah. So there's a, a typed letter on, from 1977 uh, from his flat in Antibes. It's all airmail paper, isn't it? It's all that very, very thin, yes, light it's, it's paper. Yes, it's flimsy. Yeah. yeah. My postcard from Belgrade, oh, wow. showing a painting from the Museum of Modern Art in Belgrade. He says it was very chilly back in Antibes. Later on, he spent increasing amounts of time at his flat in the south of France and in Switzerland. And there isn't quite as much globe trotting, but there's a postcard from Capri. Nice. Uh, from Graham Green and Yvonne Cloretta. So what year have we arrived at now? We are in the late 70s, early 80s. It is. I mean, you so do... We're coming through to the later letters. You can see his handwriting changing mm. with age, can't mm-hmm. you? Definitely. This yeah, looks like the hand does. of an older, an older man. When these arrive, so these are very neatly and beautifully catalogued and chronologically arranged, what state were things when they arrived? How much have you reordered and... Group, we really around. haven't. I mean, Josephine was an archivist's dream, of course, okay. because she had she clearly kept what she thought was important, mm-hmm. and she'd kept it in a specific order. Okay. And her order was clear. This was not all just dumped in a box. It okay. was in uh, the same arrangement, pretty much, that 
that we've kept it in. Okay. And that's one of the main principles of archival cataloguing, is you need to preserve the original order in which the creator created and used the collection mm -hmm. as far as that's possible. Mm -hmm. um, in a case like this, it's very easy. There, there's no decision to make, really. Mm -hmm. If you receive a box that's full of stuff that's all you know, back to front and upside down and out of order, then you really have to go through it very carefully. And it's only once you've listed it and found out exactly what's there that you may be able to see better right. how the things relate to each other. But you know, Josephine made that absolutely clear, and there was no problem about that at all. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we've kept it in her order, yeah. um, which helpfully, is also an order that will make sense to researchers. I mean, mm -hmm. a set of letters in chronological order. And it's tempting to, I mean, the, the obvious way that people are going to want to use this archive is in terms of research on Graham Greene, but it's also, I mean, it's all about Josephine Reed, isn't it? I mean, do you think there's going to be a, a biography of Josephine Reed that will appear in the world one day? Does, is, this a, is this an archive that could um, bring into the critical discussion these often sort of forgotten face figures, secretaries, administrators, archivists, that the kind of workings, the machinery behind the, kind of, behind the glamour of Green producing all these novels. Is she going to become a, a subject in herself? I don't think she would want to be. Yeah. If there were a biography of Josephine Reed, this would be an important collection yeah. for that researcher to use, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But she was deliberately very self-effacing mm -hmm. um, next to this blaze of yeah. fame of Graham Greene. Self-effacing, but there's a clear sense of the inevitably collaborative world of being a writer and of writing here, isn't there? I mean, yes, I think so. She, and he, Green is dependent on her. Um, that's what you get from, from reading these letters. And she takes a personal interest in that. Mm. Um, she clearly enjoyed her work and found it stimulating and interesting yeah. working with him in this way. Yeah. Um, and, but this was her private collection and she never showed it to anybody yeah. during her lifetime. Yeah. So but she was content and knew that it would be seen by people after her death. So she died in 2012. Yes, right? I, I'm sure she knew that was likely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, shall we look at another, another beautiful grey folder? It's all about what's inside. These are the, some of the transcripts from the dictabelts. Oh, our lovely dictabelts. Oh. oh, I see, yes, red ink and black. Red ink and black. These are all from fairly late on, autumn of 1987, so we don't have the, the whole run covering years and years and years, but it's a very good snapshot, um, indicating how much correspondence he had to get through. Mm -hmm. So many letters to friends or, or colleagues um, begin, I'm sorry I haven't written before, I've just come back from whatever exotic destination he'd been mm -hmm. visiting, mm -hmm. and I have a vast heap of correspondence to get through. Yeah. But sometimes he would be writing to the same person twice in a day, yeah. or several times in a week. And does that strain, does that, that kind of administrative burden find a place in the novels too? Does he start to write about letter writing or dictaphones or cassettes posted from France? Does that, does that become sort of thematically present in the books, do you think? One of his characters in Brighton Rock does have a dictaphone. Right. Um, but I don't think it's because he's a great correspondent. Okay. It seems to be more of a status sort of thing. I see. So he, he kind of plays with a lot of those things, and he'll, he'll turn things on their heads. Let's have a look at some transcripts. So some of the finished versions of these letters will be in collections in other places. I see. And that could be an interesting aspect of research, comparing the, the transcript of his instructions for the letter to what was then sent. Yeah, I see. And, 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 look, and seizing on differences between the two, perhaps. Yes. Well, here we have an a indication of uh, the uses of most of this letter. Um, it's in black, and it's fairly clear that Josephine is simply transcribing mm. Green's word-for-word dictation of exactly the wording of the letter. I see. But her red notes include 
uh, dear Mr. So-and-so. Yeah. So obviously he, hadn't, he hasn't said that. He's I actually see. started his dictation with just the name of the person, not the salutation he wants used. It's an amazingly meticulous mode of transcription. I mean, you would have thought Isn't you would just would put that in <laughs> without any note. I mean, exactly. this, this is... She noted all those things. Right. And then if she had to go away and look up somebody's address or add information before she could send the letter... Mm -hmm. Um, either practical or, or more substantive, um, she would make manuscript notations as well. Okay. So there are several different layers of, of her transcription and also kind of notes to self right. in these transcripts. And that's coming as a result of her work in the Foreign Office and the British Embassy in Athens. Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that training, that's what's informing that care and that meticulous approach, do you think? Yes, that being absolutely thorough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost a sort of... Um, what we'd refer to in archives as a diplomatic edition. Yeah, and, and when we say diplomatic edition, what do we mean by that? Well, you get a lot of them, um, say, in the 19th century, when historians had much more time for these things, mm. and they would make an, an exact um, transcription of a, a document, including all the little abbreviations and squiggles and odd spellings and so on. Nothing was standardised, yeah, yeah. so that you could see as nearly as possible exactly what was on the page of the original. Right, so it's as close to a, a facsimile edition as you, as you can get through a process right. of transcription. Yes. Right, I see. Okay, great, let's, let's press on. Here we've got Graham Greene's uh, verbatim quotes for a letter to the editor that he wants to write um, about a situation in Argentina. There are notes about the date in red and w even where it's sent from, so she notes that as well. Then there, there's a, a personal sort of informal spoken message to Josephine that, that isn't a dictation exactly. It's, it's notes to her about how she's to put the letter together and who it's supposed to go to right. and under which name. Right. And then he gives the exact wording of the letter, which is in black type, so that she doesn't mix up her instructions and the verbatim for the wow. draft of the letter. It's an amazing document of, of the complexity of producing a letter at this point when, the, um, when Green is, is, is far away and it's a sensitive subject and there's a meticulous secretary, um, the kind of multiple layers. It's a really careful production. It reminds me of email. Yes. So just the, the density of the amount of correspondence he was yes. going through. And many of the letters are only a few lines. Yes. But he'll write multiple ones, you know, perhaps of the same person in a day. Yeah. And it's, I don't know whether everybody in those days corresponded like that. I suspect not. But I think Graham Greene would have been very at home with email, yeah. even though he would never have made his own email address available to anybody. Yeah, yeah. So he died, was it 1991? Died in 1991. So he just missed the email boat, didn't yes. he? Just yes, by, just. By, what just by would a he have of, made of that? By a of, I mean, this, this is immediately um, fascinating and, and, and suggestive this letter about an article that Green wants to write about Argentina, and presumably one can find that article, um, and this would give an amazing account of the process of the production of that, yes. that piece. That yes, he's it was changed. published. Yeah. The, the, the backstory. And so what we're getting here, I guess, is the, the kind of really rich backstory, the workings, the foundations of all the stuff that the world has seen out there by Green, and, and um, that seems totally, totally compelling. And that's the impression you get mm. as you look at more of this, isn't it? Is, is of that reticence and, and secrecy and care, but at the same time, the meticulous 
maintenance of all these of all these documents. So it becomes a very um, kind of voluble collection. Retrospectively, we, we, we can read a lot of stuff that was going on that, that we didn't get at the time. Yeah, she preserved that confidentiality to the nth degree yeah. um, during his life, during her employment with him, during yeah. her the rest of her life as well. Yeah. But she did keep these things. Yeah. And she kept them meticulously. And uh, the, the correspondence uh, with the Birthplace Trust, these invitations to attend, invitations to speak, um, are kept inside the Grain Green Festival programmes. Right. So she didn't go, but she was interested that they were happening. Wow. There's been a number of big um, biographies of Green in the last 20 years or so, haven't there? I guess Norman Sherry is the most um, famous one. That's right, his, um, his uh, three-volume yeah. It must be a, an anxious moment if you're a biographer and you hear and you, an anxious but also exciting um, moment when you hear of a, of a big new collection like this that's suddenly in the world that could refine and revise and even kind of um, overturn certain ideas about Green and, and his work. Um, anxious, I suppose, but also exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So the work is not over yet. So Anna, can you, can you say a little bit about the process of cataloguing and responding to this collection. So it arrives in big boxes, multiple boxes, um, and reads meticulous, so it's already fairly well-ordered. What do you do then with it? How do you begin to make this available to the world? Well, uh, the first thing I did was to photograph it series by series as I worked through, so that I could work mostly from digital images. I see. Um, because, as we've said, a lot of the letters are on very flimsy paper. Mm-hmm. They're, they're actually quite fragile, a lot of them. It's just better preservation-wise. Okay. And also, Graham Greene's handwriting is so terrible, it's really helpful to be able to magnify yeah. a, um, a, a good photograph on screen. And, and as you're cataloguing, do you have, you have to read each item on its entirety, or you have to get a sense of who's writing it, the date, the, the subject, how much, how much are you interpreting in, in, in these documents as you're, as you're cataloguing, do you think? In this case, a lot of that had already been done for me, um, and the main thing was to, to main, maintain the order. Okay. Um, if you're working through a collection that is not in an obvious order, then you have to pay attention for, for more clues to what the most useful and authentic or original order might be. Okay. That was done mostly here. But um, because it's such an... Um, interesting new collection to research, of course I wanted to include as much detail as possible yeah. as well. So you follow a format, um, but I did want to include um, content descriptions for each item of and this catalogue, which normally we, we don't have time for, but yeah. for something as important as this, yes, we would do that. And do you, did you feel that you were drawing close to Josephine Reed? Did you feel, do you feel that you know her in any way? Was, did you have any kind of... Was, was there an emerging sense of intimacy? Did you feel you knew who this person... Even though lots of what you were getting of her was her work as an archivist, her, her cataloguing, her transcribing of someone else's words. So she's sort of invisible in a way, or mm. she's sort of always ventriloquizing, but she's also absolutely at the heart of this collection. Do you think you got a sense of... A sense of her. Do you feel you knew, you, you know who, in some sense, she was, her character, her person? The sense that I get is of a secretary through and through, um, but with an archivist's sensibility, she had an eye for the, the future permanent value of this collection, the, the lasting quality of it, okay. and the lasting quality of his work. And, in fact, in a couple of the letters with Yvonne Cloetta, they talk about the, the lasting quality of his mm. work, um, no matter what the press or the media or mm-hmm. biographers or anybody's opinions were, they felt that his work spoke for him and would continue yeah. as, a, as a lasting thing. And I, I have the feeling that she, she felt that way about this collection as well. Great. So, yeah, I, I, don't, 
I don't feel... I couldn't say I felt that I know her because the sense I get most strongly is that she was a very private person. Yeah. But personally, I think she was a, a warm person and, and quite a lot of fun. Yeah. And yeah. also crucial, clearly, for the literary reputa- reputation of, 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 of Green, kind of self-effacing, but yeah. absolutely central to, to, to Green's work, his career, and also his posthumous reputation. There's a very strong sense that Graham Greene trusted her absolutely, yeah. personally and professionally. And that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice working relationship. And it's, it's quite formal in their correspondence in the earlier years. And then once she retires as his secretary, although she continues as his literary typist, the, the letters, and we, again, we only have Graham Greene's side of them, but the letters become much warmer mm-hmm. and more personal and mm-hmm. less formal, mm-hmm. even though they continue to mix personal and work topics. Um, if people want to find out more about this collection and how to visit it, where should they go? What should they Google? How should they find out? If you Google Balliol Graham Greene, hopefully this will be one of the first things that comes up. Our website is archives.balliol.ox.ac.uk. You'll be able to follow the links to the modern papers collections there and Graham Greene, Josephine Reed is already listed there. The fruit of your labours is already out there on the internet. That's fantastic. Okay, Anna, Sander, thank you very much for talking to me about Josephine Reed and Graham Greene, and um, thanks for listening, and do come and visit. I think that's what we want, isn't it? Yes, it is. Thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>